are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And tonight we are picking up on page 175 with paragraph 47. And uh, we were just finishing the last few paragraphs on his step on pride, where he's been dealing with blasphemous thoughts and uh, how one should deal with them. Uh, not only uh, the pain that they cause the, the individuals that they afflict, but how we are to be, deal with them on a day-to-day -day basis, where the, what their origin is, and then how what are the remedies uh, that the fathers put before us. And then we will be moving on to meekness, simplicity, and guilelessness in the next step. So again, we are in paragraph 47. He who wants to grapple with the demon of blasphemy in any other way is like a man trying to hold lightning in his hands. For how will you catch or contend and grapple with one who bursts into the heart suddenly like the wind, utters words quicker than a flash, and immediately vanishes? All other enemies stop, wrestle, and linger, and give time to those who wish to struggle with them. But not this one. He has scarcely appeared, and he's gone. He has hardly said a word, and he is away. So this is part of the struggle. Uh, for those who deal with blasphemous thoughts. And if you remember, he talks about the evil one drawing close to uh, a simple soul, a humble soul, and uh, that the blasphemies come not from within, but from without. And it's often like overhearing a conversation of the demons who draw close uh, to a soul. And so while the heart has been purified of the passions, uh, one can still be afflicted in this way in order to try to lead them to despondency. And I've always found this image that he uses in this paragraph to be striking because it's like he describes it as, as if it were lightning, that it comes upon a person so quickly that there is no anticipating uh, these kinds of thoughts. And that's uh, what makes them so disconcerting that they flash into the mind so quickly or before the mind so quickly that one is left unprepared. And, uh, and you know, it may seem to be, uh, I think, a kind of last resort on the part of the demons, but I think anything, again, that can distract a soul or turn it away from prayer because they are having uh, such disconcerting thoughts 
uh, placed before them can be enough in, in his mind. And so uh, John will counsel us, you know, not to give them undue attention uh, and not to dwell on them or to try to analyze uh, them because how does one do that with something that flashes with the quickness of, of lightning is here and gone, that there is no opportunity to do that. The only thing that we can do is humble ourselves before God even more and cling to him through the practice of unceasing prayer, not to give uh, these thoughts undue consideration. And uh, one would hope that that would come as some measure of comfort to those who struggle with these thoughts in particular, uh, not to personalize them or uh, believe that they come from the, the depths of the unconscious or that they're some part of one's own desires. And uh, oftentimes, as we as he said, that they will come at moments when we are engaged even in worship. And again, that's what can make them so painful. Uh, but the course for us is to simply keep the, the mind and the heart focused upon God. And again, not to focus too much upon them. Number 48, this demon often likes to haunt the minds of simple and innocent people, and they are more upset and bewildered by it than others. We can certainly say of them that all this happens to them, not from self-esteem, but from the envy of the demons. And so envy, uh, we've talked about this before, uh, about how it it can develop into malice, uh, the desire to want what another has. Uh, when one cannot obtain it, one will seek to destroy it for others. And so the demons in their malice and their in their envy will often seek to disrupt that communion that exists between the simple and humble heart and God. If only they can do it in this way. Uh, by drawing close to the soul and uttering uh, these blasphemies in order to lead to distraction or to despondency. We ought, not, we ought to stop judging and condemning our neighbor, and then we shall not fear blasphemous thoughts, for the former is the occasion and the root of the latter. And so, as always, whenever we turn our eyes to another, and judge when we lose that humility is where we open ourselves up uh, to the, the action of the evil one. And so even if one has the, uh, you know, a great deal of virtue, I'm sorry, even if the, the soul has a great deal of virtue, uh, the evil one will take the opportunity, especially when we cast an eye, a harsh eye towards another, uh, to inflict uh, this kind of harm upon us uh, that can lead to a, a drastic fall. Uh, again, a kind of despair spiritually uh, for the individual. As one who is shut up in his house, hears the words of passers-by, Without joining in their conversation, so the soul, keeping to itself and overhearing the diabolical blasphemies, is troubled by what is said by the demon pa passing by. So again, uh, draw, the demon's drawing close 
the image uh, once more is helpful uh, as if here overhearing the conversation of somebody walking outside of one's home and in through the window that similarly uh, that uh, a holy soul can hear these uh, conversations as it were of the demons and this is where we are to guard all of our senses as in our hearts uh, and keep the focus upon God precisely that we might not be open to this kind of attack and um, you know it's, it's been striking over the course of the years and certainly with Climacus um, to hear them speak to us of watchfulness and this constant remembrance of God and it's precisely for this reason, because of the relentlessness of the of the evil one, that he, in a subtle way, or even uh, in this kind of uh, brutish fashion, uh, seek to aff afflict us, uh, even with again the worst kinds of thoughts that don't don't come or arise from our own thoughts. And uh, this probably should give us pause also to the things that we often will expose ourselves to. There's so much, I think, in social media, movies, television, uh, that is blasphemous. And uh, I think it's not a stretch to uh, think that the evil one would make use of such things in a similar way. Uh, again, it can come up so quickly where one isn't expecting it, but also uh, fill the imagination and memory with these things very quickly uh, to the point that it can be disconcerting. And to willingly expose oneself to these things is more than foolhardy. Paragraph 51, uh, for those who just joined, we are on page 176. He who despises him is delivered from this affliction but he who contrives some other way to wage war with it will end by submitting to it. He who wishes to conquer the spirits with words is like one trying to lock up the winds. And so we are to despise such things, but uh, not to, to engage in direct battle. Uh, again, the image is a very powerful one. Uh, as if trying, he tells us, to lock up the winds, that a thought that comes like a flash of lightning, uh, blasphemous or not, from the evil one, is something that we cannot take hold of. And so our greatest defense is to cling to God, to he who is our rock, that this is how we remain unmoved. Uh, by such things, uh, that the, the, these thoughts might be striking against us, but so long as we are rooted and standing upon Christ himself, we can remain unfazed by these things. So, you know, humility again comes to the forefront in the spiritual battle, as, you know, our asceticism isn't this kind of uh, even though we're engaged in a warfare, we have to know our enemy, as it were, and uh, that there is not only this relentlessness, but also uh, a kind of understanding of how our minds work and where our weaknesses lie, and so not, so not to turn our attention uh, to them in such a way that uh, we are drawn away from God. Number 52, 
one zealous monk who was troubled by this demon wore out his flesh for 20 years by fast and vigils. But as he felt no benefit, he wrote his temptation on the tablet and went to a certain holy man and gave him the tablet and bowed his face to the earth, not daring to look up. As soon as the elder had read it, he smiled and raising the brother, he said to him, lay your hand on my neck, son. And when the brother had done that, the great man said, on my neck, brother, be this sin. For as many years as it has acted or shall act in you, only after this ignore it. And this monk assured me that even before he had left the elder's cell, his infirmity had gone. The man who had been tempted in this way told me this himself, offering thanksgiving to God. He who has won the victory over this infirmity has banished pride. Uh, what a beautiful story. So, you know, let this, uh, as it were, this affliction be laid upon me, on my neck. Let me bear the burden of this uh, for you. Uh, and it's at that moment that he's freed of the affliction, you know, where he begins to stop wrestling with it. And I think the elder and his capacity for discernment, but also in his holiness is able to see, you know, how deep the struggle had become for this man, 20 years of fasting and vigils uh, uh, in the attempt to wrestle with it. But the moment that he could let go of his grip and place it on the elder is the moment that he is freed. And this is a common thought in the writings of the fathers that to attribute one's virtues or one's healings or victories, if, it, if you will, in the spiritual battle uh, to one's spiritual elder and to their prayers uh, rather than to our own, own efforts. Louise writes, in my culture of origin in Quebec, Canada, the French Canadians swear with the names of God in the Eucharist, even psychologists in supervision with me. I ask them to not do so, but they relapse after a while. I thus decided to offer inwardly my apologies to Christ when they swear. Can I do something else? Uh, I suppose not meet with them <laughs> uh, would be one one option, especially if they are unable to alter uh, their their uh, speech. Uh, I think it's hard when it has become a pattern, as you said, within the culture, a habit of mind. And that's what it's become for them. That uh, I had a summer job once where I worked with the uh, Ross Township Park crew, you know, the, the, those who are responsible for all the parks and the in the north part of Pittsburgh. And there were a few men and one in particular where uh, a vulgarity was just a part of his uh, vocabulary and so deeply rooted that it was every other word. And it was a disconcerting thing because it was clear that uh, it had just become a part of him. And the, the part of his speech patterns that he prefaced every phrase with this vulgarity. And, you know, if it was anything other than a summer job, I couldn't, I wouldn't have been able to bear with that. I mean, I think uh, 
if it had to be something enduring. And so uh, I think to be able to gently do is what you've done to ask people not to do it. And I think to be persistent in that, uh, but not again, to overly focus upon it. I, I think, you know, when we ask them to do it and they aren't able to respond to do what you, you are doing would be the path, I think, because of what John has said, you know, that we don't want to linger or to wrestle with this. And so to offer it to God, you know, to make some sacrifice to God, to, to pray the holy name of the Lord, uh, I think would be a way to respond to it rather than engaging in a debate over it. But I think there are a lot of things within our culture that where we would want to simplify our life and remove ourselves from it when it becomes a, an occasion of sin, or if not occasion of sin, something that agitates the mind and the heart for us. And as we go into, you know, discuss things like simplicity and, uh, you know, we, we see how hard won that can be in our lives to have a kind of stillness and silence and simplicity of life. And then if we thrust ourselves into circumstances where the mind and the heart is agitated, uh, it sort of can undo what we worked long and hard to overcome. Anything at all about his writing on pride or on blasphemy before we move to the next step? Uh, David Swiderski writes, when I lived in Spain, the same issue uh, most swears uh, blasphemous. I was teacher, a teacher, so uh, just joked, while you need a thesaurus and have limited and very poor vocabulary, it seemed to work and get a laugh, right? You know, to distract uh, the attention away from it. And... Uh, not to give it undue attention yeah, in the sense of being uh, shocked by it. We know where it comes from. And so to maybe try to guide another out of it and humor can be a good defense in so far as it goes. Okay. All right, number, step number 24 on meekness, simplicity and guilelessness. And uh, I love this step. Um, mostly because we spend very little time thinking about or talking about meekness or, uh, or guile or, or what guilelessness uh, looks like and uh, doesn't seem to be part, part of our common parlance as Christians or a virtue or virtues that we uh, typically speak of or understand uh, how important they are in the spiritual life and uh, what kind of strength uh, they reflect to us, strength of virtue. So again, we're on page 176, step number 24. The morning light precedes the sun, and the precursor of all humility is meekness. Therefore, let us hear in what order the light arranges these virtues. For he says, learn of me, for I am meek and humble in heart. So then before looking at the sun, we must be illumined by the light. And then we can look with a clear gaze at the sun. For it is impossible, absolutely impossible, to gaze upon the sun before we've experienced that light 
as the true order of the aforementioned virtues teaches us. So meekness, simplicity, and, and guilelessness. Before we can understand humility and see the beauty of it, uh, first we have to be uh, have the light of these virtues shine upon us. Meekness is an unchangeable state of mind, which remains the same in honor and dishonor. And so isn't that an interesting uh, definition, an unchangeable state of mind? It brings a kind of stability to us on an emotional level. And I, I think when we consider it, especially in light of anger, that anger as an emotion often rise, arises when we are faced with an injustice or, uh, or see an injustice or, uh, or when we are insulted by another and will experience uh, a rise in anger within us. And meekness is that ability to have love touch this this virtue and shape it for us in order that we do not strike out and give back to the other what we have received and so one becomes christ-like in in the sense of not of being able to receive what is given uh in love and not return it with evil and uh, we've mentioned here a couple of times St. James saying the anger of man does not bear fruit acceptable to God. And one of the reasons for that is because of our lack of meekness, that, uh, that love, that grace often does not touch this, especially the insensitive faculty that we've talked about. And if you remember, this faculty of the soul was given to us especially that we might rise up very quickly against sin sinful thoughts or temptations as they would come upon us and strike them down. And uh, But if this is directed towards another, then it can give way to resentment and wrath and rage and uh, or simply a breakdown in charity. We begin to uh, direct uh, our anger uh, towards others and their weaknesses and vulnerabilities rather than keeping our eyes on our own poverty and our own weakness. Uh, Father Marty writes, learn of me for I'm meek and humble in heart. It seems then that depending on Christ and becoming like Christ transforms us into being humble. So it seems like it is part of the process of theosis. Is this so? Yes, I think it's so in regards to the other virtues as well, to put on the mind of Christ, to be conformed and transformed uh, in and through our union and communion with him. And so the opposite of vice for us is not virtue. The opposite of vice is Christ living within us, dwelling within us, so that his virtue becomes our virtue, his strength becomes our strength. And so I think the point that you put forward here is a good one. There's a, a kind of transformation that takes place by the grace of God. And our asceticism uh, is meant to, to open, help us open ourselves to the action of that grace more and more fully, to remove the impediments to it, uh, in particular, our passions or our attachment to, to sin or the things that lead us to sin. But uh, 
that the whole process of asceticism or the end of it is theosis, the immediate goal is purity of heart, but ultimately it is deification, to be conformed to Christ, to be transfigured in every way. And I think this keeps us, and we've talked about this often, from viewing uh, the Christian life and the ascetic life as merely being the perfection of natural virtue, of being good people and maybe reaching a very high level in that regard, to understanding that what we are called to is this union and communion with God himself. And again, where Christ's virtue becomes our own, that we love as he loves. Uh, and we're able to, you know, the Beatitudes, in a sense, are a kind of self-portrait of Christ. And we can't be under any illusions that that reality uh, that we hear proclaimed in the gospel can, can be interiorized or internalized in any other way than by the grace of God, by our union with Christ. Sharon writes, how can insecurity be transformed to meekness? I guess I'm asking how to display the strength I feel in Jesus Christ, uh, but the, I'm not, oh, but the body belies. Uh, well, you know, I think part of it is, again, our misunderstanding of meekness, which we often think of as weakness, of being kind of milk toast. Uh, in the face of the world and the things that uh, those in the world will do to us. And so we often think of it as being a doormat, where I think how John presents it to us and what we see in Christ is that it's this extraordinary strength, this ability to love the unlovable. And, uh, and that's not weakness. Uh, and it's certainly not being a doormat. It's being able to acknowledge the, the dignity of the other, even when they are directing uh, their anger toward, toward us. And so in, in many ways, it's one of the greatest of strengths. Uh, and I think our, you know, what we feel on a physical level uh, can either be you know, the intensity of our anger or fear. And I think both of those things begin to dissipate when we enter into the peace of Christ, the peace of the kingdom. What is it that we need fear? Or what is it that a person can take from us, whether, you know, it's honor or our physical or material goods? Nothing. Uh, nothing in comparison to what we have in Christ. And I think so often uh, we, um, so often our life is filled with so many things that we hold on to uh, with such a firm grip that we fear losing hold of it. And, uh, and so we move to a defensive position rather than moving to a position that unites us more fully to Christ. Uh, Sharon, thank you. I think my question was more self-centered, i.e. not appropriate. Well, if you feel that you want to re uh, restate it, that's fine. Uh, I thought your question was seemed clear from my perspective. Maybe I didn't 
grasp it. So if you, you want to restate it, uh, I'm more than glad to move back around to it. And we'll look at some of the other questions here uh, in the meantime. Anthony writes, something that helps me deal with anger and bad thoughts is that any bad thought against a man really reflects on the Lord and the new Adam. And any bad thought against the woman really reflects on Our Lady, the ideal woman. I don't like that so that so that it helps keep the interior life in check to dash the infants of evil thoughts against the rocks, right? And I, I think uh, whatever means that helps us in that moment to shift the mind and the heart away from, again, that defensive reaction to the other. Uh, always Christ is going to be our great strength. The Lord that from Isaiah, the Lord is an eternal rock. Uh, I think when we can hold on to that, we might be hit by waves of insults uh, and st still remain steady in Christ. Unchangeable, as he describes it. Uh, David Sadursky, on my door to my room, I have a quote which I see when I leave and when I go to bed. In loving one another, God in us made flesh. I often find I fall short at night, but seem more careful the next day. Right to acknowledge the ways that we have fallen short at night, but to begin again. Uh, I don't know if it was St. Benedict or St. Anthony that said that. You know, every day I begin again. And often it is as simple as that, you know, that we repent uh, gazing at our life during the day of the ways that we've fallen short of love and then begin again uh, to rise up again. Okay, number three. Meekness consists in praying calmly and sincerely for a neighbor when he causes many turmoils. Again, you know, such a challenging thing to do. And again, this is where we begin to see the strength of the virtue of, of meekness, the, the capacity to pray for, to desire that which is good uh, for one who has uh, caused us great turmoil and to ask for God's blessings upon them uh, is something that often, uh, I think, frees us from the grip of the anger immediately. I think the capacity to pray for the other uh, often has the bears the fruit of making us let go or loosen our grip on uh, the anger or anger's grip on us, I should say, in those moments. Uh, Daniel writes, this conversation about meekness makes me think of the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent carried away, which is very much not being a doormat. So it's a matter of that violence being directed towards biting our own tongue or what you have or what have you and not against another. Right, in a, a kind of holy violence to oneself uh, and to one's own will. And we've mentioned, and I love this quote from Philip Neary because it speaks of this holy violence, but in a gentle way. Uh, the greatest mortification, he says, lies within the breath of three fingers and touches his forehead, the mortification of the of the reason. 
and uh, to mortify the intellect, the understanding, one's judgment. And if we can do violence to self in that regard, you know, our initial judgment of that circumstance is that a person is doing violence to me and that I need to defend myself. Whereas if our identity is rooted in Christ and, uh, and has become so deeply rooted that we are one with him, then our first response is going to, to be able to see that the, uh, that the demons are often and more often than not behind the falls of the other. And when we're able to see that and acknowledge that, then we can again lose that harshness that we direct towards them and rather direct towards the demons and then also again to be able to pray for them but that holy violence that you know mortification uh putting to death as it were the the uh private judgment uh, or our touchiness of mind touchiness of heart I mean, goodness sake, that's one, that's a big one. It doesn't, you know, sometimes we can, we can be so touchy. Someone can say, you know, look at it as cross-eyed and we'll, you know, feel this deep anger within us rise up, you know, because we've imagined that they're thinking something or, you know, if we've had rough relations with them in the past, you know, they can have a smile on their face and we think that we're, they're mocking us or think little of us. Well, if we had our eye, if we had our eyes fixed upon Christ, we wouldn't be thinking anything at all, and we likely wouldn't even notice that, and we certainly wouldn't uh, direct it towards ourselves and uh, thinking, well, okay, internally that person's mocking me because they they're grinning while I'm 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 talking about something, and it could be just that they're zoned out and they're thinking about something stupid and not paying attention, uh, which still can be irritating, but it's not necessarily directed towards us in a hostile way. But your point's well taken. You know, I think, again, it sort of is a manifestation of strength. And uh, let's see, Suzanne writes, Father Rippinger, or Rip, Rip Urger, I guess is the way to pronounce it, uh, talks about demons putting negative perspectives on things that are pure illusions and that get us angry, right? That if the demons can get us thinking about things in a certain way uh, and twist our interpretation of it, uh, it's a very easy way then to create conflict uh, that is based upon nothing. And it's sort of like this, again, the idea of a person smiling while we're talking. Well, they actually, they must think that what we're saying is stupid. And, uh, and then so we, you know, become frustrated with them. That's right. And I'm not a big fan of like, you know, husbands and wives don't text each other about more than the time that you're going to meet or something along those lines. Please don't have conversations about your relationship and that goes for fr friends and everybody in general because uh i don't know if you've had it happen but i've had it happen where that sort of blows up in your face because somebody interprets something that you said in a way that it wasn't meant and uh this is why face-to-face -face conversations i think are always best uh ashley writes to suzanne's point uh it's uh 
cogitative power of the brain that Father Ripperger talks about, which makes associations and is why asking the Lord to protect our faculties is so important, right? That, um, yeah, the I think that's, yeah, that's right. You know, it's what our thoughts are. And so it's the distortion of our thoughts. And, you know, I think it's, you know, the fathers refer to it as logismoi, you know, these thoughts that are put before us and the, the twisting of them. And uh, so, yeah, it's right on the mark. Number four, meekness is a rock overlooking the sea of anger which breaks all the waves that dash against it. It remains completely unmoved. And again, you know, this is where it takes us back to Isaiah. The Lord is an eternal rock. And so as often as the waves of anger break against us, they're always going to break against something that is unmovable if we are set upon Christ or set upon the peace of the kingdom. Uh, you know, the, there's great comfort in understanding that the peace of the kingdom is something that is invincible and the hope of the kingdom similarly is invincible. And so to be deeply planted upon this is to be able to pass through so many different things in the course of our life without being shaken. And, uh, you know, there are certain things in life that can be terrifying, uh, but it's one thing to be filled with fear over something that is fearful and uh and threatening uh and it's and another to give ourselves over to that fear and the anxiety produced by it and allow it to control us and so if we are again firmly rooted in our relationship with christ what is going on around us might seem terrifying on the surface. And certainly when we look around the world today, there's more than enough reason uh, to, to be a little bit frightened, you know, to say, to say the least, the chaos within the, within the world and threat of war or the reality of war. Uh, and so to, to become more and more focused upon Christ at this point becomes important. And similarly, silence, prayer, uh, you know, all of these things, not as an escape from reality, but again, a deeper immersion in he who is reality, so that we do not lose our perspective and have these, the things going on in the world be the things that shape our identity or uh, that uh, destroy our, our hope or our faith. Sharon Fisher writes, there, there, that, that is what I was trying to convey. I feel peace that the passions and fears overtake. So how to slow or reduce the effect of the physical body that reacts? Apologies if I'm not clear. Well, you know, I think the fathers talk about that a lot. And it is in the humbling of the mind and the body. So stillness, silence, constancy in prayer, vigils, fasting. Uh, all the, the ways where we move from that multiplicity of thought to simplicity uh, as we stand before God. And in one of the most recent groups, we, and I think 
the last couple, we've talked about St. Nectarius and his trials of being slandered. And we see him throughout this recent movie that was made of him making constant prostrations as part of his, of his prayer, involving the whole self, the whole body, as he's crying out to the Lord. And uh, there's a kind of humbling of the mind and the body before God as one is crying out to him. And uh, again, I think this aids us, you know, all those things aid, aid us in this movement of the mind and the heart to God and not to allow our passions or our fears to take over and begin to, to guide and direct us. Uh, Father Marty writes, meekness as an unmovable rock is strength and much different than the connotation of meekness is self-effacement and highly flexible that I'm used to in our society that's helpful. Yes, for me too. I mean, I, I'm, the first time I read this, I thought, goodness sake, you know, for all these years, I've been thinking about it uh, in a much different way as sort of this kind of self-effacing attitude, you know, of, you know, a squeaky voiced response to the other, you know, tim timid, you know, I think is often uh, the, uh, the image that comes to mind. And I think when we see Christ in the gospel, you know, the times where he's, you know, taken to the brow of a cliff and, you know, they're going to about to throw him off. Uh, you know, he's able to maintain, you know, this kind of unchangeable state of mind. And his focus is set upon the fulfilling the Father's will. And, uh, and despite what uh, obstacles he faces, he keeps moving forward until that's accomplished. But not with this kind of, you know, I think Christianity and is often rejected because of what it sometimes presents. Sometimes it's ugly things or kind of harshness, but I think it can also because sometimes what is projected is a kind of weakness uh, that, uh, you know, that we aren't presenting uh, virtues for what they are, strengths. You know, that what is being put forward is something much less than the virtue and the strength of Christ. Uh, Louise writes, to help myself not engage in frustrations, angry reactions, etc. I am at times gently reminded by God, I believe, to say, may thy will be done. If it comes from God, it is then okay by me. Right. Again, you know, something requires, I think, a depth of faith, a strength of faith, you know, to be able to say that and to mean it, you know, to be able to say uh, th that I trust in the providence of God or, with, you know, Paul saying, you know, that you know, God makes all things work for the good of those who love him, that, you know, even the things that we bear, that our hardships can be used by God in such a way for that they bring about our own salvation or that of others. Father Marty writes, the strength makes more sense uh, that, that Moses, the leader and prophet of Israel, could be called the meekest of men. Yes, isn't that interesting? Uh, because he comes off as this figure 
uh, for us uh, of great strength and one upon whom this enormous burden, if you will, is placed. Uh, but, you know, our John draws our attention uh, to the phrase in the beginning, learn from of me from I'm meek and humble of heart. And the rest of that phrase is warrants are looking at it, you know, that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That uh, what Christ gives us, you know, yoke is often seen as something that's put on like an ox to pull, you know, a heavy cart. And, uh, but it also has to be perfectly fit that the ox might do its work and, you know, that it, uh, it's not falling off or causing wounds to develop because it's, you know, rubbing across the flesh. And, but when we think of the, the, the yoke that Christ gives us, it's perfectly fit for the work to be done. And it is the spirit that is, has been given to us. And so what is needed in order to carry the cross that the, the Lord uh, gives to us, uh, we are given the, the perfect grace to be able to carry, carry it as he desires. We don't have to wonder why it is this particular cross and not another, or if we will be provided with what is needed. Uh, the actor who played Nectarius wonderfully portrayed the strain and violence, yet tempered with real interior peace and steadfastness, experienced in the practice of the virtue of meekness, also the deep sadness that oppresses the soul in the face of sad injustice, which is absolutely, you know, this, he has a group of, you know, his spiritual children, these young women who start uh, uh, a, a monastery, a convent. And they come under attack as well uh, because of the envy and the malice of others. And so this, the deep sadness that he experiences in the face of the injustice is great. Uh, that, you know, we feel these things, experience these, these th things in the deepest way because we see the truth about them. And, uh, and the evil and the hardship that others experience. We see their crosses. And uh, again, we want to think of Mary in this regard, the humble and meek soul, and yet pierced, whose heart is pierced with a sword, who, you know, experiences with this perfect intimacy would our Lord experience on the cross. So it's not a kind of blindness, I think, to what we experience in this world. Number five, meekness is the buttress of patience, the door or rather the mother of love and the foundation of discernment. For it is said, the Lord will teach the meek his ways. It prepares us for the forgiveness of sins. It is boldness in prayer and abode of the Holy Spirit. But to whom shall I look? even to him that is meek and quiet. And so if we want to understand what meekness is and to see what it truly looks like, we look to Christ, who himself is meek and humble. We keep our eyes fixed upon him so that, uh, that meekness can become for us 
the buttress of patience or the, the mother of love, what gives birth to true love, our capacity to forgive even our enemies, the foundation of discernment. So uh, this kind of steadiness of mind or unchangeable state of mind allows for true discernment of spirits that we're able to discern that which is from God or from the self or from the evil one. Uh, the things that are pleasing to God uh, when we have this kind of stillness of mind and heart. Meekness is the fellow worker of obedience, the guide of brotherhood, a bridle for the enraged, a check to the irritable, a minister of joy, the imitation of Christ, something proper to angels, shackles for demons, a shield against bitterness. So, you know, one could really spend, you know, this again is where I think we sometimes move too quickly. I think you could spend a whole, you know, a whole month, you know, on this one statement because there's so much within it. A fellow worker of obedience. You know, when we have this unchangeable state of mind, and our thoughts aren't racing or being driven by rage or irritability, uh, then we are able to hear, we're able to be obedient. We are able to hear what God is saying to us in the moment. Uh, and we know that's most difficult in moments when we are undergoing trial, when those waves are breaking against us. And so we, we are able to remain steadfast in our obedience when we have this unchangeableness within us, a guide to brotherhood. So if we want to know how to hold our families or our religious communities or friendships uh, together, then uh, this becomes our guide. You know, we uh, hold on to this virtue in order to protect that which is precious. And again, hard won. Uh, that you know, brotherhood, community is not something easy that is create. You know, on a superficial level, it can come together very quickly, but it can fall apart just as quickly when uh, irritability and anger and rage begin to dominate. And uh, and so, to protect that which is good, we want to have this this virtue, a bridle for the enraged. So. You know, we can become like a, a wild beast, you know, uncontrolled, and it becomes the bridle or, you know, like the bit in the mouth that allows us to, to go in the direction that we know God desires of us, rather than to let ourselves simply be driven to be driven uh, by the passion and that uh, the energy that is often behind that. If you think about it, when we become enraged about something, uh, how the adrenaline will flow and uh, we can see red and, uh, you know, and lose our wits very qu quickly. Uh, and I've often wondered about that phrase, you know, to see red, but if you've ever become really angry, uh, everything can sort of, uh move into this state where it's like you're in this kind of mode where things slow down 
a little bit and you find yourself driven by, uh, or maybe I should say speed up because it sort of draws you into it so quickly because you're controlled by it. And I think sometimes, you know, there are memories I have, distinct memories from childhood in particular, where we often don't have very good control of that. And when we feel slighted and, uh, you know, I had more than a few of these experiences where I, I saw red, you know, little betrayals by friends and things like that. And, uh, and it's amazing how vivid those memories become. Uh, Anthony writes, Italian temper here. I've little, literally seen red. <laughs> Maybe it's just the wine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think yeah, there is some truth to it. I mean, maybe it's our blood pressure going up too, you know, that, that does it to us. But uh, it is, you know, it does alter the state of mind. Uh, a check to the irritable minister of joy. So the virtue itself, uh, you know, ministers to us, but allows us to to minister to others as well. The the, the virtue of uh, meekness, I mean, that uh, that it allows us to maintain a kind of joyful spirit even in the face again of obstacle or the anger of others. And so this meekness becomes sort of a healing balm for our own heart, but also can. Uh, be something that diffuses, allows us to be peacemakers. Uh, you know, a person who's meek or has this gentle spirit can step into a situation and be able to diffuse it simply by their presence. Again, the imitation of Christ, something proper to angels uh, and shackles for demons, a shield against bitterness. So, you know, that which uh is a ref reflection of the angels you know unmoved on on this level uh but also that which can control the fallen angels that have become completely controlled by it uh this is the power of it so it makes us angelic uh in our nature uh towards others uh, but if we take the other path we become like demons in the hearts of the meek, the Lord finds rest, but a turbulent soul is a seat of the devil. And so to foster this virtue, this unchangeableness of mind allows us to have a kind of peace within. And so we become, as he says, uh, the, a place where the Lord himself, uh, he who is peace can find rest. Uh, and so, you know, we find ourselves visited more and more by he who is peace when we're able to create a heart or establish within our heart an abode that is pleasing to him. And meekness is what does this for us. Uh, the meek shall inherit the earth, or rather shall exercise dominion over it but bad-tempered men will be harried out of their land. And so, you know, it's really our hearts, I think, in the way that we want to be able to read this, that, you know, having, exercising dominion over it, 
you know, this deepest part of ourselves, uh, including the, you know, for the fathers, the heart was also, you know, this kind of the full self, including the unconscious. And so meekness allows us to have dominion over ourselves in such a way that we are able to live as God has intended us, where that image and likeness is, is restored to us in such a way that we are able to live our lives in a way that, it, again, is pleasing to God. Uh, but bad-tempered men will be harried out of their land. So out of, you know, we are driven, you know, out of our minds and in a sense, out of our hearts, we lose control and we become driven by external forces. So interesting, you see the image that's being emerging here for us uh, of this virtue. It's something far, far different than I think we often, uh, than the way that we often talk about it. A meek soul is a throne of simplicity, but an angry mind is a creator of evil. So a meek soul is a throne of simplicity. So one who is meek uh, is going to seek to create uh, circumstances for himself as well as for others that allows this kind of gentleness and tenderness to reign. Again, where we can be this uh, place where the, the Lord finds finds rest and where we are going to gravitate towards those circumstances that also help to help it to persevere and not to agitate our own minds or hearts. St. Isaac the Syrian says, uh, if you can't be a peacemaker, at least don't be a troublemaker. And uh, it's one of my favorite lines from him because, you know, at least don't stir the pot. You know, if, if, you're anger, if you're angry and unhappy with something, then, you know, don't agitate others uh, or bring uh, uh, anger where there is none, uh, except within, within your own heart. And uh, I think over the course of time, meekness is going to make us want to simplify our lives. You know, we often, we've talked about this in the past, that so we often move at a frenetic pace and we will continue to add things to our life, sometimes things that are good, without that realization that you cannot continue to add things to your life without removing something. Uh, and in that constant adding, you know, of uh, sort of uh, having this kind of consumerist mentality, I want all these things, including the good things in my life, can steal something pretty essential from us, this kind of simplicity of life, whereas we should be in many ways looking for ways to open up silence, room for silence and stillness that allows us to enter into this communion with the Lord. You know, we're often looking for, you know, ways to engage in more and more things, uh, to entertain ourselves as it were, and to fill the mind with all these different things where, you know, our the movement within should be towards the simplicity that allows the Lord to come and dwell within us. 
Ashley writes, I think I could contemplate these last handful of paragraphs for months, if not years. But could we say that God's meekness is also a facet of his mercy too? To me, there seems to be not so much a reaching out from God in meekness, but a staying uh, of his hand, a resoluteness to endure our infidelity. If ever there was someone worthy of being angry at being wrong, defended or betrayed, it is God, and yet he waits and endures our wretchedness while not destroying us, but offering us a way back to him. Yes, you know, absolutely. Again, the model, John tells us, is Christ himself. Uh, a little earlier on the page, uh, I forget where that was, if we need to look for a model, it is, it is right before our eyes. It is Christ himself. Uh, oh, uh, number five, but to him, but to whom shall I look? Even to him that is meek and quiet. You know, again, referring to the, the Lord here, that we keep our eyes fixed upon him in order to understand what meekness is. Because part of how we understand it is through our experience of it, of having been shown it and given it. And given it, you know, at almost every moment of our life. Uh, and this is uh, often in, you know, the spiritual life or the, the life of prayer or the struggle for virtue, we lose sight of that. It's not going to be from reading books or understanding the definition about it. You know, with all due respect to John Climacus, I think he, he would say this too. It's, it, it's in and through the experience of Christ himself and the act of praying and engaging in prayer that we learn how to pray and uh, that it's, it's not simply a notional reality for us. It has to become something real. And uh, certainly being conscious of the fact that we've been, that we've received at his hand uh, this, this gentleness and tenderness uh, that he has been long suffering. And remember a couple months ago, we talked about Tom Ackland's book, The, the Passion of the Lamb, and he, how he refers to, uh, you know, that we often will speak of the om an omnipotent God or omniscient, uh, all-powerful, all-knowing, and yet we rarely think of an omnivulnerable God, you know, one who opens himself in this radical love to others and even that which is wounding uh, to those who are his enemies. Uh, and uh, so it's in the experience of that love that we, we come to understand it fully and then can embody it and desire to embody it in our life as well. You know, think of those who experienced it from our Lord's own hand, you know, the, the woman caught in adultery, you know, he doesn't, like the others, allow, allow this bloodlust, you know, to take hold, but doesn't lose sight of the person there and engages her with a tenderness that likely transformed her life. And same with Matthew, the tax collector, who everybody would have hated, you know, that, again, could, uh, could see, you know, what was within the heart of the individual. 
And I think only when we have seen ourselves as being the recipients of this, then can we develop the desire and the love for the virtue itself that leads us then to want to cultivate it within our own hearts. So that brings us to 834. Anybody have any final comments? They've all been great tonight. Great, great comments, questions across the board. So thank you. Excellent as always. So have a wonderful week, everyone. And uh, we'll see you at the Evergatinos. Uh, keep me in your prayers. We have a couple other podcasts coming out from Campus Ministry and then a lecture at Duquesne on the Desert Fathers. And so hopefully those will be up sometime soon in the next weeks. Okay. So have a great night. And while we close, as always, with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.